We are back in our studies in the book of Romans in chapter 3. These video classes are brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas. I'll take a few minutes to review to bring us up to the opening of Romans chapter 3, and then we'll get into that chapter and see what it meant to them, and we will conclude with what it ought to mean to us today. The main point of the first three chapters in Romans is to identify the human problem, and the human problem is sin. And that's why all of us need the gospel. Gentiles, Paul said, had walked away from what they were able to know about God and his will. Jews, though anxious to accuse the Gentiles, were guilty of the same sins. Though they claimed to be Jews holier than Gentiles and with scripturally circumcised men, in fact, they were transgressors of the law. We all need the gospel because of sin. And that theme continues now. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul begins chapter 3 addressing the Jews while God committed to them some advantages in their national existence. His oracles, the law of Moses, they did not fully participate in those advantages God granted to them, becoming transgressors of the law God gave to them through Moses. As Paul develops this, he takes his readers to the conclusion in verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now let's start here. To have an advantage and not take it. That's how chapter 3 begins. The Jewish people before Christ were formed into their national existence by God himself and then given the law of Moses. The advantages of having the law of Moses and the sign of circumcision was not fully accepted and embraced by the Jewish people from their heart toward God. Though they had that law, many did not believe it. That said nothing about God. It said that God's provisions for them were not received and used by them. Notice this strong statement in chapter 3, verse 4. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Let's talk about that. Let God be true, but every man a liar. We can lay down this rule. Whenever there is a conflict between man and God, man is wrong. Apparently, one of the Jewish arguments was the fact that we didn't believe simply means God wasn't faithful and powerful enough. They were blaming God. Paul denies any such thought. Listen to the opening verses in chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. The unbelief of man, the disobedience of man, never argues that God is unfaithful or that God hasn't done enough. Paul answers, certainly not. 
God is not an equal party in his relationship with man. He is superior. <coughs> he defines truth. If there is a problem, it is always on the human side. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 51, the prayer of penitence offered by David after he sinned against God. God is always right. We are never qualified or positioned to accuse God of anything. So Paul is continuing to hammer away at one primary point, that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of sin before God and need the gospel. Even though the Jews had some advantages, they were guilty of sin. It wasn't God's fault. It was their fault, both Jews and and Gentiles are guilty of sin and need the gospel. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust, who inflicts wrath? And in parenthesis it says, I speak as a man. That translation may be a little rough, so listen to this in three other translations. But if Paul raises a hypothetical, he's answering an objection. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. That's the ESV. The NIV. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Paul is answering a hypothetical. He's responding to a typical objection. In the time of Paul, and as the gospel was first being preached, <coughs> there were some reactions, objections, Arguments that seem very strange to us. Arguments were made to justify sin and blame God. To take the heat off of man and transfer it to God. Paul is responding to that kind of thinking. Let me try and illustrate. When we hear of crime, the more crime increases and we hear about it, one thought we have is to appreciate law enforcement. Now, that starts out very reasonable, doesn't it? But suppose the argument takes this direction. In a sense, the presence of crime has a good purpose in that it demonstrates how valuable law enforcement is. So the criminal might argue, I'm publicizing the value of law enforcement. They ought not to punish me because through my crime, I'm doing a service to law enforcement. I'm advertising their value. I'm doing marketing work for them. Of course, we recognize that's a twisted argument. So in this passage, we can hear an objector saying <coughs> something like that. Okay, Paul, let's assume we're guilty of sin. Our sin shows how good and right God is. So we're doing God a service, and he shouldn't punish us. Here's Paul's answer to that in verse 6. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? And he goes on in verses 7 
and 8. And he says, For if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Any argument that blames God and justifies man's sin is a false argument, and its absurdity can be quickly displayed when you consider who God is and who man is. Jews might argue back in the time of Paul, we are here to magnify the name of God, and if we're guilty of sin, it just serves that purpose. It's a blasphemous thought to Paul. It is a human argument quickly to be dismissed. Verse 8, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. <coughs> Again, I think the NIV may be helpful here. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is just. <coughs> Any argument that tries to put a better light on evil, that justifies the sinner by sophistry, that blames God, all bad arguments, and those who make them deserve their condemnation. Verse 9, Paul gives a preliminary statement of his conclusion, conclusion that he's working on here in chapter 3. We Jews are not really better than the Gentiles, for we previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. So, all excuses, all arguments and sophistry needs to be dismissed and the conclusion accepted. All are under sin. All men, all women, all Jews, all Gentiles need the gospel because of the choice to sin. There is no excuse. Beginning with verse 10, a lengthy quotation from the Old Testament. Paul is substantiating his claim that all are guilty of sin, and he's doing that by stringing together a series of passages from the Old Testament. There are uh, seven citations here. Five of them are from Psalms, and the other two from uh, Isaiah and Ecclesiastes. Let's look through these quotations quickly and make some observations. One, this is universal. None righteous. No, not one. Verse 11 uses that word none. Verse 12 uses the word all. Two, this series of quotations offers some specification. Tongues that practice deceit. Feet running swiftly to shed blood. Three, their sin involves, as all sin does, no fear or respect for God. So Paul is building his case, and this becomes a grim declaration of man's moral bankruptcy and guilt before God. It's why all of us need the gospel. Verses 19 and 20, Romans 3, verses 19 
and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The Jews who had the law of Moses were in a defenseless position in regard to their bad conduct because they could read the law. Reading their law should have left them speechless and defenseless about any claim of being not guilty. (laughs) The correct hearing and reading of the law would, in a good and honest heart, shut up every mouth. This is so because they'd not kept the law they were under, and that's the point of verse 21. They were law breakers, and so their own scripture that they read and heard established what Paul was arguing. All are guilty of sin. Now, at this point, the context begins to shift to the next theme I want to discuss with you so that we can make that transition clear. If by keeping the law, we cannot be righteous before God because of our periodic failures or our long-term failures, how can we be righteous before God? That's the transition into the next theme in Romans. The law of Moses witnessed that there would be in Christ Jesus a way to be right with God. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, (coughs) the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just as Jews and Gentiles are guilty of sin, Jews and Gentiles now have, in the time of Paul, in Christ, the same singular remedy. And the remedy can be personally applied through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to conclude with four truths for us today. One can have great spiritual advantage and yet not do well spiritually. The Jews were God's chosen nation. They were given the law. They enjoyed the benefit of the prophets. John the Baptist went to them first. Tons of advantages, many opportunities. Maybe people today have all kinds of advantages and heritage and opportunities, but they neglect them. And it is as if the advantage was never there. We have all kinds of advantages today, but are we taking advantage of our advantages to be right with God? Number two, there is this simple principle that was always true. God is always right. The more you read the Bible and become engaged with the teaching in your life, the more you realize the power and grace and wisdom of God. And this is emphasized when you read the life of Christ and when you come into the book of Romans. God 
is perfect and he's always right. Number three, there is never any justification for sin. No excuse. No excuse for them back then, none today. One cannot argue circumstances, situations, genetics, culture, ignorance, no excuse. Here's something about the gospel we begin to see in this passage. Everybody needs it. Everybody is invited. Everybody gets into salvation the same way. Everybody who wants to can meet the requirements. The gospel is so simple. The problem is sin. The solution is our response to Jesus Christ, who by the grace of God died for us. Come back next time. More from the book of Romans.